Welcome to Extraterrestrial Reality. Today we're going to talk about a series of stories that appeared in UFO magazine in 1998. It was a story that was broken up into three parts. Uh, the first part appeared in the June, uh, the May-June issue. The second part appeared in the September issue. And the third part uh, appeared in the December issue of that year. Uh, this is something that has been talked about a lot by Richard Dolan. Uh, and uh, these stories center on this fictional character named Sedge Masters, an intelligence official who is read in on the uh, secret control uh, UFO program. Uh, called Zodiac, uh, and he's given uh, various assignments in these so stories. Uh, and and the interesting thing about it is that nothing is solved. There's nothing at all solved, and it makes me wonder, after reading through these stories, I, I, I think that's probably how it still is uh, for the secret control group. They probably still don't understand uh, what these beings are, how, where they're coming from, how they how they evolved, who who made them, or, or what what they're doing, how they, anything how their craft operate. I'm, I'm sure there's still a lot of uh, questions that are unanswered, and that's one of the reasons atop the uh, reverse engineering aspect uh, that they they don't want to tell the public because they have no real answers to give them, and that's how this story plays out. You think you're going to get answers, but you don't, and that's what I really liked about it because it seemed very realistic to me. And uh, apparently it is. It's actually not only, as, as Richard Dolan points out, uh, the, the, this, this stuff was actually mentioned in the Wilson Davis notes. Uh, Eric Davis, of course, had uh, interviewed uh, Admiral Thomas Wilson back in the early 2000s uh, about uh, uh, the UFO uh, control group and, and uh, the gatekeepers. And, and one of the things that were mentioned in the notes was the, uh, this series of stories. Uh, actually, in particular, uh, Davis points out that he did mention this uh, stuff, this, uh, this Sedge Masters stuff to Thomas Wilson in those notes. So it is mentioned in there. And it's also something that the uh, Robert Bigelow, uh, uh, his NIDS uh, group, was very interested in people like Hal Puthoff, uh believe that this is that this story, these series of stories, were based on truth. Uh, and I guess you know why wouldn't they? Because if, if now this woman who worked for TRW, Mary Elliott, uh, she tells this information to this her attorney, and he's fascinated by it, and he decides to put it down in writing, and he and he uh, creates this fictional story all around uh, what he learned from her. And that's basically what's going on here. But anyway, I want to go through some of this and talk about it because I just think it's fascinating. And I, and I do highly recommend uh, anybody who's interested in this subject, if you haven't already, you got to check it out. Of course, I'll leave the link in the description so you could uh, check it out for yourself. Richard, Richard Dolan has the whole thing on a PDF. But the first part of the story, I'll just uh, I'll give a little breakdown here. The first part pretty much deals with uh, the Sedge Masters get be, uh, being read in on the program uh, under guard. He's, he's, he's given, uh, uh, he's, he's told he needs to read this, uh, read this documentation, and he's, he's brought to a room where the stuff is laid out on a table, and, and basically what you read is what he's, what he's reading. That's the first part of the story. The second part of the story deals with Masters trying to, uh, he's basically assigned to try to get an answer uh, from these uh, uh members of the of a recovery team that had gone to a crash site in the midwest and they all lost an hour and a half time uh there was missing time and then part three i thought you know when you get to part three I th you think you're going to get an answer to that uh and you don't you don't get an answer to it in fact there's other assignments that masters uh gets involved in and you don't get answers to those either and i think that's probably how it is 
And that's what I was fast. That's one of the fascinating aspects to this, uh, to these series of stories. But I want to go through some of this because a lot of it just rings very true. Uh, here, anyway, it starts off on the first, in the first story, it says here, uh, there was a note here from UFO magazine. It says, what you are about to read is largely unverified, but that doesn't mean it's not true. It's the type of UFO information that would typically be deeply buried then carefully studied and compartmentalized by a small faction within the intelligence community as suits any sensitive black operation. As such, straightforward corroboration is difficult at best. But UFO magazine has the advantage of more than a decade's worth of collected bits of information and broad-based facts on which to construct some fair extrapolations. Drawn from a range of sources, the following incident reflects upon one of the blackest of American covert operations that deal directly with the UFO phenomenon. Then it starts off with this uh, this Sedge Masters being uh, brought in and he's brought to a, a, a room where he's uh, told to uh, read this documentation and he, he reads this letter. <clears throat> and here's what the letter says. It says, uh, Dear Mr. Masters, consider this a deeper introduction to your present assignment. As you were told in last week's special briefing, you were selected for the program less for your wide intelligence background and technical skills than for the results of your psychological profile, both the one you took when you first joined the agency and the one administered earlier this year, necessarily limited to technical ex experts and professionals and only a handful of military, scientific, and medical uh, disciplines, the program nevertheless cannot sacrifice its dependence on absolute secrecy and the personality traits that go with that exceptionally crucial need. I and my colleagues want to congratulate you on nearly half a lifetime of unwavering circumspection in regard to the restricted information to which you have been privy. From the long list of classified technology to the panoply of trade craft which you have successfully and courageously practiced in many areas of the globe what you'll be doing with us should be regarded as a complete change not only in your understanding of conventional trade craft but in the very attitudes and habits that you have come to accept as sop in your work we're dealing with something that falls well outside the normal boundaries of classical espionage and counter espionage as practiced since the advent of world war ii and yet has always been included within the classified mission statements of the various agencies and military branches comprising the intelligence community since before the formation of the agency in 1947 the program has been carried on since then albeit without acknowledgement or broad dissemination within the community itself for reasons which will be obvious as you read the material below. Let me just stop there for a second. Now, you could actually imagine if you're going to be brought in on such a program like like what the UFO uh, program, the, the secret control group, you're, this is something, this sounds like reasonable, doesn't it? I think it does. But anyway, continuing here, it says, it must be emphasized that a good deal of the information set forth below is of the highest significance to the national security and cannot be divulged even to those of your associates and colleagues in the community in whom you repose implicit confidence without authorization being given to you. We will discuss more about the established protocol for this in the days ahead. For now, refer to the attached appendix, wait, excuse me, refer to the attached appendix A, in which you'll find details on the use of the application of code words, the protocols of formal introductions and parameters of discussion derived therefrom. Any breaches of the conditions or the protocol therein will be dealt with as a security crime, even if committed inadvertently. 
with the severest consequences to you and any recipient of the information contained in the communication, regardless of whether the recipient solicited the information. Then it goes on, it gives a history of uh, 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 the, the, the begin. it talks about World War II and uh, uh, the, about some of the initial sightings of, of UFOs, of flying saucers. Uh, and it says here, at the time, little could be confirmed about the reports of unidentifieds. The persons offering the reports were not professional espionage, uh, espionage agents, and in any case found it difficult to elicit much information which could be of use in assessing the nature of the sightings. Military intelligence made modest efforts to flesh out these empirical reports, but little information was developed. In retrospect, the most ominous of the reports claimed that a downed saucer-like craft of indeterminate origin was recovered by the Wehrmacht troops in the days immediately preceding Germany's invasion of Poland. Now, that, that some of these things, I think, were they, they could be embellishments uh, for the story, but hey, maybe there is some uh, something to that. Maybe there was something that was recovered by the Nazis uh, in 1939. Who knows? But anyway, continuing here, it says, The rush of events focused the attention of the military and the OSS on other matters of more pressing concern, although it had been resolved to look into these reports again at the war's conclusion. The need to follow up on these matters was underscored by the appearance of the so-called Foo Fighters, which shadowed military aircraft of all combatants during the war in both the European and Pacific theaters. Naturally, each side assumed that the, that the devices were new weapons of the other side. And then it has uh, C attached Appendix B for censored press reports and military intelligence reports pertaining to the Foo Fighter phenomenon and the apparently uh, related phenomena which were the subject of Project Twinkle. At the conclusion of World War II, it became apparent that the German Nazi regime had been developing a number of advanced missile and aircraft designs, a few of which, such as the jet fighters and the flying wings, had been developed in parallel, although somewhat belatedly, in the United States and United Kingdom. Nevertheless, it was clear that extensive technological intelligence gathering would be necessary to determine the full extent of German technological advances in these and other areas. The effort was both impelled and hampered by worsening relations between the Western Allies and the USSR, initially played out in occupied Germany, where most of the investigating work was being pursued. With the beginning of the Cold War, virtually all access to German investigation sites in the Soviet zone of occupation was denied to Allied intelligence and military personnel. And there the matter might have rested, but for the Project Twinkle phenomenon's occurrence and the sighting by pri- uh, private pilot Kenneth Arnold in summer of 1947, uh, that's when things changed, uh, as we all know. Uh, so that's most certainly true. It says, but before there could be a full assessment of the implications of these events, in July 1947, two craft were recovered from the desert near the Roswell Army Air Corps bomber base. One of the craft was a deltoid wing lifting body, which had suffered a rupture to the crew compartment and some impact distortion, but which was otherwise intact. The other craft had completely disintegrated either a before or upon impact. So basically they're talking here about the Roswell crash and they're saying it's two saucers crashed into each other. That's what the suggestion is. Just like uh, the late Stanton Friedman used to say, he believed that it was always two saucers crashed into each other. Uh, but he had different ideas. He had he believes it was two. I, Stanton Friedman's belief was that there were two full crafts that were recovered in different uh, areas out out in the desert. Uh, here it seems like in this story here that's being presented, it, it makes it sound like the 
uh, the stuff, the wreckage that was found strewn all over the Foster Ranch and discovered by Mac Brazel, uh, that was one craft. And then the other craft was the one that settled down to earth uh, 45 miles just north of Roswell, uh, where the bodies, and, and one of them was alive, were discovered. Anyway, continuing here, it says the other uh, other craft had completely disintegrated either before or upon impact. Although there were although there were working hypotheses that these craft were either one secret Soviet surveillance craft designed to spy upon the many advanced technical and military facilities in that region, two craft from some other dimension, the de- the, the details of which were and remain unspecified by the proponents of this hypothesis, or three craft from our own future exploring the past through an unknown temporal temporal travel mechanism. It soon became clear that these craft were from some planet or solar system other than our own, as they were occupied by two kinds of beings, which clearly were not of earthly origin. The occupants of the deltoid craft were largely intact after the crash. When the special recovery team established for this purpose located the crash, Two of the occupants of the deltoid craft were still alive, although one was badly injured and would have later died and would later die upon being taken to the Roswell Air Corps base. The other survivor was alive and remained so for almost 30 days after the crash. I just want to point out something here. You know, it's interesting. You know, the one that was—they say that there was one that stayed alive, and there's there, there were witnesses that have been uh, people, uh, uh, researchers like Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey, and there they had a n- number of different books on the Roswell incident, and there was one incident, uh, one story where, not long after that crash, uh, there were a, a group of young uh, Air, uh, Army Air Force personnel that were shown a live extraterrestrial and that basically that was it they were and then they were asked to give their opinions uh, there was a story like that and and that jibes with this story here in a way uh, and here we'll continue here it says the other survivor was alive and remained so for almost 30 days after the crash it was able to walk and seemed to understand that it was a captive among intelligent beings like itself. All efforts at communication with the survivor were inconclusive, inconclusive and largely unsuccessful. The three other occupants were dead when the recovery team found them. So they're talking about altogether five beings. Uh, one survived for 30 days. The other one lived, was still alive when they found it but died shortly thereafter. And there were three other dead ones. The general appearance of these creatures was as reported in the recently published somewhat fanciful investigative books on the subject, which have received a certain amount of popular acceptance and which resulted in the recent 50th anniversary celebration of this event. Popular attention to this event remains strong. Now, this, of course, 1998, when these stories came out, uh, that was the 50th anniversary of Roswell, and it was a big deal that year. Uh, that's when we got the... In 1997, is that's when the Air Force told us to lie about the... Uh, uh, the crash test dummies that they were tossing out of uh, uh, from high altitudes in the 1950s, and they tried to tell everyone that that's what uh, the, that that they were the aliens that people saw in 1947, basically time traveling uh, aliens, uh, but they were really crash test dummies. Uh, ridiculous. Anyway, continuing. The occupants of the second craft were not found for several more days as their bodies had been ejected in what appeared to be safety pods similar in purpose to those later employed in such high-performance aircraft as the B-58 Hustler and XB-70 supersonic bombers. These creatures were longer in dimension than the ones of the deltoid craft and their bodies were dispersed over a much wider area due to the disintegration of their craft. All were dead when found 
with their bodies much deteriorated from prolonged exposure to the elements and some having been partially eaten by coyotes and other creatures, all of the latter of which were found dead near the alien corpses. Analysis of the animal remains and the alien bodies led to the conclusion that the animals died from poisoning caused by ingestion of chemicals in the alien flesh. It appeared that the second group of aliens could not survive if exposed to the Earth's atmosphere. The need to remove all evidence of the event from the two crash sites limited the amount of crash reconstruction which could be accomplished by the recovery team, with the consequence that it has never been made clear what exactly caused the crash. Unfortunately, the large number of civilian and military personnel who witnessed physical evidence of the crash sites and back at the Roswell, Roswell base created a significant security hazard which was dealt with by intimidation and bribery of the witnesses to the extent that those means proved effective. And that's, let me just stop there for a second. Yes, there were people uh, uh, people who were bribed, uh, obviously. There were, we, we've heard of that one before. A lot of uh, soldiers, a lot of army personnel were bribed. They were uh, it's been said uh, there was many uh, several witnesses who said that they received ten thousand uh, uh, dollars to keep quiet about uh, any anything that they saw in Roswell while citizens at the time were uh, intimidated uh, and threatened as we all know anyway continuing here it says until unofficial investigators journalists writers and others began renewing investigation of the subject in the early 1980s these techniques were largely successful in keeping the truth of the roswell event from the public as well as its ominous implications the autopsies on the bodies of the creatures showed that they were of very light build and clearly not from this planet the simplicity of their brain structures and non-communication in the face of stalwart Stalwart efforts by researchers led investigators at the time to conclude that they were not the original designers and builders of the craft involved in the incident. Rather, it seemed that they were, quote, biological robots designed and bred for the purpose of undertaking such dangerous missions as flying through the atmosphere of an alien world. Let me just stop there for a second. Of course, biological robots, that's what Gary Nolan talks about all the time. He thinks that they are biological robots. I wonder if Gary Nolan read this. I'm sure that he has. Uh, The survivor finally died when its body accumulated toxic waste products from its metabolism. There were no apparent excretory system or sexual organs. Consistent with this biological robot hypothesis was the complete absence of any galley or food stores aboard the craft. Of course, the possibility of there being a mothership from which these craft came also was also considered as was the less likely possible possibility that these small craft could themselves attain transluminal speeds uh now let me just stop there that's very interesting uh no food on board the craft uh that sounds uh probably you know, that's probably what's going on uh their uh, they died the survivor finally died when his body accumulated toxic waste from its metabolism we've heard different stories about uh, uh are these these uh, they, they wear something on their on their bodies to hold it in, right? Is there something the the smell of ammonia on some of these creatures? Is that it's all? That, this is again, this is something from 1998. It sounds uh, very very. Uh, it sounds plausible to me. The propulsion system of the craft, of obvious priority interest to her group, was indeterminate for long after its recovery. While still subject to the laws of physics, as we imperfectly understand them, the craft's workings went far beyond our technological grasp at that time. Unfamiliar, nearly magical technology was displayed. Devices that we now know as integrated circuits, fiber optics, 
super tenacious fibers and metals and an unfathomable power source and drive mechanism, as well as other technology, which it is not necessary to discuss in this document. The military implications of the presence of these craft in our atmosphere and the possibility that they may have established friendly communications with our Cold War enemies were obvious and unsettling. The discovery of these craft led to an equally unsettling re-examination of the European intelligence reports referred to above, as well as the post-war investigation by General Jimmy Doolittle of the Ghost Rockets of Norway. Uh, the president was made aware of these developments and ordered the formation of a special group of prominent scientists, cabinet, military, and intelligence officers. The popular literature bandies about the name of Majestic 12 or MJ-12 for this special secret task force formed by the president. Other names by which it has been identified in the public mind through disinformation programs are Project Saucer and Aquarius. While it is possible that any one or more of these was the name of the group at one time, for most of its, its existence, the code name for the group and the extensive program which it spawned has been and still is Zodiac, with each of its operational subdivisions known by the name of a different zodiac zodiacal sign, including Aquarius. Uh, and then it goes on and continues uh, with the how Zodiac has evolved uh, throughout the years. It says the operational involvement of high government officials in Zodiac waned to a certain degree, especially with the conclusion of the Eisenhower administration, although most presidents were still kept informed of key overview facts as they came to light. However, it fell to the agency's superpowers, supervisors of Zodiac to determine who else in the government should have access to this very closely held and highly compartmentalized information to the point that, like the heads of military intelligence before World War II, they sometimes decided not to share information with certain presidents, including Nixon and Ford. All other presidents were kept reasonably well informed, including Jimmy Carter, who went back on his pledge to reveal all of the information the government had on UFOs once he was elected president. Now, you know, as you read through this right now, you could see, I could see like this, uh, the, the author, I mean, it, he got. I, I believe what what you're seeing here. I think that he did. There's a lot of fictional here. A lot. He, he there's a lot of supposition. I think he did embellish some things, right? The, the of course the the, the story is fictional. The characters, uh, Sedge Masters is is fictional. All of that, right? But I think he did the fill in the holes. He probably came up with some of his own ideas. And but I think uh, for the most part, I think what you're getting here, uh, the description of the aliens, the 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 some of the things that they. Uh, uh, that 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 happened. I think that in in in, uh, in crash with crash retrievals and 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 some of the incidents that they investigate. I think that these things are based on fact by things that uh, uh, Mary Elizabeth Elliot had relayed on to him. That's what I believe here. Anyway, we're going to skip forward here a little bit. Um, uh, it says here's uh, yeah for, uh, it says here with the uh, as of the early 1980s the agency exercised complete control over Zodiac with the cooperation of the rest of the intelligence community and the military branches particularly the Air Force and the Navy from 1947 to the early 1980s Zodiac recovered 11 other alien craft in various states of disrepair from a diminutive single seat flying wing to a rather large craft that had to be trucked into Wright-Patterson by dead of night, some craft were turned over to our government by friendly powers, most mo most notably Denmark, which allowed the United States to retrieve a rather large disk 
that had been submerged off the Danish coast. Occasionally, a live craft occupant was recovered as well. Now, I wonder about this Denmark claim. Did, uh, is that something that really happened and, and, and was relayed to, the, uh, to Griffith by, by Elliot? Uh, or uh, did, did he just change the, change the location? Maybe it wasn't Denmark. Maybe he's, maybe he's talking about somebody else. Maybe he had to mix it up a little bit, change some things around so as to not uh, uh, maybe get, get, uh, too, draw too much attention uh, from the intelligence uh, com- uh, community. Uh, goes on here. It says there are ongoing efforts to discover the technological secrets of the recovered craft and to reverse engineer them or their subsystems. But so far, these efforts have met with a limited success. The materials, technology, and knowledge of physics of the builders of the craft still present considerable obstacles to matching their observed performance characteristics. Besides the technology, the beings found with these craft are central to the program's investigations there seem to be at least four type of occupants the two described above as well as the humanoids that appear to be almost human and nordic in appearance and small strong hairy ones there may be others but these are all that have been recovered to date it is possible that one or more of these types represent only a subtype of the others the there is no evidence of a telepathic communication abilities of these creatures speculation in the popular literature notwithstanding However, there is some sort of empathetic manipulation and thought control ability as detailed below and in various attached appendices. Details of the following incident should be carefully considered and recalled as they will be useful to you during the first phases of your assignment. As you progress, you'll be regularly debriefed and subsequently introduced to new phases, each of which may or may not have any direct relevance to what has gone before. As such, each anecdote like the following is to be utilized strictly for the discrete phase which it introduces unless you're instructed otherwise. Any deviation from the practice and attitude will be clearly evident and will result in your immediate termination. I just want to stop there for a second and go back to this, what he was talking about here with the uh, there's no evidence of telepathic communication. That's, 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 that's very interesting. Instead, it's empathetic manipulation and thought control ability. So I guess you know a lot of people say that they, you know, people who are abducted say they actually hear things. That it's it feels like they're being told uh, instructions or told to calm down, don't worry, you won't be harmed. But what they're saying here, what they discovered at least at this time, if if this is true, is that uh, they don't really have telepathic abilities. It's more of an empathetic manipulation. Um, and it, that does play uh, a part here in this story too. Later on, also thought control. Uh, that's another interesting aspect here that's discussed. Well, um, I'd love to know more about this stuff. I would love to see the real documentation already. I'm tired of this cover-up. Anyway, here it says, By the late 60s, Zodiac had been able to recruit members of an elite recovery team. 67 well-trained men were dispatched to the sites of crash landings and had by the 1970s perfected the tasks of completely and thoroughly documenting all actions and cleaning up any debris remaining after these incidents. The efficiency, trustworthiness, and expertise of these men was was and is unquestioned. Within the last 48 hours, the team was dispatched to a remote site in the Midwest where a craft and bodies were collected and ferried to the appropriate locations, seemingly without incident. These men always comply with strict directions to document practically every single minute of these operations. They are debriefed immediately after each operation. This time, it's become clear to our 
debriefing teams at Wright-Patterson that the first members questioned could not account for an hour and a half's worth of time spent at the site. The pattern of forgetfulness was exact with every team member debriefed as far. Debriefings were cut off for the day. You have been selected to be part of a newly formed debriefing team whose task will be correlation and analysis of these events. Clearly, the commonality of the gap in memory among the team members was induced somehow, either by some sort of localized phenomenon having nothing to do with the recovered craft or by contact with the downed craft. But these two options are tentatively rejected for lack of supporting evidence. We never encountered this phenomenon before. We fully appreciate that you have been introduced to this material on a rather short-term basis. Ordinarily, your introduction to this information would be more gradual, but we have no time. We need to get to the bottom of, bottom of this in short order. Um, now, I'm not going to read the rest of this, uh, but you're, get the, you're getting the idea. I just want to say this is that what's interesting to me, and you know, when you get to part two, you actually, this Sedge Masters, who's, who was given this letter to read, uh, basically uh, meets with, uh, with uh, s- s- some of the, the top people in the team that, have the, that experience the missing time, and uh, he can't remember. I, I mean, the guy, the, he doesn't remember what he doesn't, he can't account for the, the, uh, the 90 minutes. But then the next day when he wakes up, he, he remembers that he's now allowed to tell tell uh, uh, his superiors superiors about it. I mean, and you have to wonder, is that something that's happened? Basically, what, what this guy says is that when they are there to retrieve this craft and, they're, and they take all these detailed notes as they go through it, uh, at, at some point, this mothership came, hovered over the over the crash site, and, and there was, while there was no telepathic communication, all the men there, while they're pointing their rifles at, at this craft, this giant mothership hovering over them, they felt that the, the beings inside the mothership were very unhappy with them being there and doing what they were doing. And it was some sort of empathetic communication that was ongoing. But still, the, the, it, it didn't account for the entire hour and a half. And then this story goes on to uh, where uh, Sedge Masters wants to use uh, drugs, not just hypnosis, maybe hypnosis and drugs to try to get more information potentially from these uh, uh, from the team members that were there that had the missing time. But it never well, and and, and by and, and part two ends that way. And when you, I was thinking when I get to part three, I'm going to learn. Okay, what what happened in that missing time? But guess what? You don't learn. And then it goes on to other stuff. Masters uh, uh, attempts to try to get his superiors to allow him to use uh, to use drugs on these guys. It's never granted. And instead, he goes on to some other assignments. Other assignments where there's no answers to some of these either. In fact, in one part, one part he's brought into a building where there's a craft and he could hear it. It's running. You could hear a humming sound. And he's told that they they inadvertently turned this on over a year ago or something like that, a long time ago. And it's been running like that for a year. They're afraid to touch any more buttons because they don't know. What's going to happen? That's the kind of stuff that's in this in this story, which I found fascinating. Because isn't that how it would be? It's very well written. It's, it, it, it's I, I I have to imagine what happened here. I mean, if this T uh, uh, this woman who uh, this Mary Elizabeth Elliot, this TRW employee who uh, relayed this story to this attorney Jeffrey Griffith, it, I mean, they must have sat down and talked about this for a long time. Uh, he must have t- t- took a lot of notes, he, and he put this into a, a format, a fictional format, to to tell a story about what's going on behind the scenes with these secret clandestine programs, of UFO cover, uh, UFO uh, secret control group, what what they do and how they operate, and 
had the importance of the maintaining the secret and there was another interesting aspect in in the part three of the story too where he's with he's working with someone else investigating some uh strange ufo events and encounters with uh, beings and uh he almost slips his tongue almost slips he almost tells her about the incident with the uh with the soldiers who had the missing time but she wasn't authorized to hear that and, and of course earlier on in the doc in the letter that he received it for his assignment he, uh, it was stated clearly that hey you know you could you, you'll be removed you'll be terminated you, you'll be terminated from your from this post from this uh, assignment if, if you, you can't tell anybody even people that are some people are written on only portions of it like this one colleague that he was working with at one point but he couldn't tell there was things that he knew that she didn't know and he couldn't tell her it's very interesting and uh, again there's no answers to anything he doesn't get to the bottom of every, any any of these assignments that he goes on there's no answers and nobody in the government seems to have any answers they don't know how the thing how some of these things work they don't know how what happened with these uh with that team the recovery team when had the missing time no answers and i love that about it and that that's why to me there was this sense of realism the, there's a sense of most certainly like this this could be and that case there that, that he's talking about with the missing time of the of the recovery team that you could imagine something like that happen because you always wonder like how come uh these things crash sometimes but the, the, it seems like how how could we recover them these, these beings aren't coming back for them in in some cases p- potentially they do and things happen or maybe they don't care who knows what's going on what the purpose what, what what these things these beings are thinking or, or or why they do the things that they do but it's it's this this sounds like something it smacks of reality to me like this is something that if it were, were to happen this seems like a, this could have been how it went down and that's why i enjoyed it so much but uh yeah so i highly recommend that you check out this i mean there's a lot more to this of course i just wanted to give you an idea of what it was with that first that was just segments from the first part there's still part two and then part three part three i believe was probably the longest part i think anybody who's interested in the subject should be should check this out and basically because of the fact that uh as richard dolan puts it it's not so fictional uh that a lot of this stuff that you're reading in here are things that are real uh these are things that are really really happened that really happened that were experienced uh, from, from this former trw employee who's uh, not with us anymore uh it's unfortunate that this uh, jeffrey Grif- uh, griffith doesn't want to talk about uh, how he came about with the, writing this story uh and why he why you know he could understand why he would write it under a pseudonym um it's very interesting stuff i highly recommend it Hey, uh, one more thing before I go. I want to talk about a comment I received from one of my followers, uh, Utah John 777 uh, He talks about an incident well, fr- that a friend had when, while he was going to college. Uh, and I thought this was a very strange encounter, and I thought I would share it with everyone. I never heard of anything like this before. It said, John says, uh, when I was in college, I was having trouble in Calc 2. The math department referred me to a list of tutors they had. I called a guy on the list who was working on his master's in mathematics and tutoring on the side. Tim, which is a uh, pseudonym, helped me that year. He was sane and sober. We became friends. Around a year later, this was around the time that Bob Lazar came out with his stories, I asked Tim what he thought and that about that stuff. He looked at me seriously and said I wouldn't believe what happened to him. Uh, he was teaching in New York City. He would have to walk to the subway every morning. One morning, he approached the station and a bunch of thugs were standing by the entrance. He decided to cut through a long, narrow alley and go to a different station. As he walked into the alley, he had the feeling someone was approaching him from behind. He thought the thugs may have, been follow- may have followed him. Uh, 
As he turned his head to look behind him, something gray insect-like about three feet tall jumped on his back and stabbed, stabbed in the back of his neck with something sharp. Something stabbed him in the back of the neck with something sharp. As Just as quick as this happened, before he had time to react, the creature was off him on, and turning out of the alley and running out of the alley ahead of him, running faster than any human could. He got a good look at it when it moved in front of him. He was in a state of shock as he got on this on the subway train, mumbling mumbling to himself, apparently so shook up and ranting about being attacked that everyone in the car distanced themselves from him. He told me this was the only strange experience he ever had, and he was a very sane person. So everybody, nobody is exempt from any of these kind of uh, encounters, uh, even in the middle of a city, uh, like New York City, uh, walking down an alley and some kind of a weird three-foot-tall insect-like being jumped on this guy's back, stabbed him in the neck with something, and then took off running in front of him. Amazing, amazing story. Uh, I want to say uh, Utah John is someone who's been following me on YouTube for quite a while now. He's always been giving me good comments, so I have every reason to believe uh, the story is absolutely true. So thank you very much, uh, Utah John, for sharing that. I, I don't know what to say about it. It's just uh, uh, yet another weird story to add to the other many, many thousands and millions of other weird stories, weird encounters that people have with these uh, weird beings that are among us. Anyway, I want to say thank you everyone for joining me. Until next time.